Philippians chapter 2. Would you stand please? Let's read. Starting verse 1, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord. So if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship or partnership from the Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy, brothers, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. We have a proverb in English that we say, A picture is worth what? A thousand words. And when rightly understood, it makes a lot of sense. Many times a picture can convey what we are trying to teach in a very practical manner. And we think about the Bible. The Bible has many pictures displayed for us to learn theological lessons. And the pictures that the Bible has are not drawings, but they are stories about people. Stories about men and women just like you and me. And those stories are powerful to convey theological lessons. So, for example, we remember David, King David, after he sinned. Do you remember what Nathan does, the prophet Nathan? Do you remember how he rebukes David? He paints a picture of a man who was rich. He had his sheep, his lambs. And what does he do? He takes the little lamb of the one who had nothing. And as that picture is painted in David's mind, do you remember the holy indignation? Now he sees how evil, how sinful the action could be. The prophets, many of the prophets, they enacted parables. Their message was oftentimes enacted by performing certain actions. Prophet Ezekiel is champion in doing these kind of things. Do you remember, he has to lay down on one side for a long time. Then he has to lay down on his other side for a long time. And uh, he has to eat uh, uh, dry excrement. Why is he doing these things? He's showing a picture of the exile. God's judgment is coming. Exile is coming. And that's how our lives are going to be in exile. And what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2 is exactly that. He paints a picture with the canvas of the gospel, of the type of humility that he longs and demands from the church in Philippi. He's painting a picture with the story of Christ about the type of humility that he's requiring in the preceding verses. So, 
Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Last Lord's Day, we began climbing this mountain that will be surely impossible to reach its top. But at least we begin climbing last Lord's Day. And I told you that Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 is certainly one of the most beautiful, most powerful, most fascinating passages in the whole Bible. And I have some different theologians now to show you once again how important and powerful this passage is. So, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he says, These verses, they constitute one of the great New Testament passages on the person and work of Christ. In a piece of magnificent exposition, Paul, Paul expounds the humility and the exaltation of the Son of God. Perhaps no passage in the New Testament has attracted the interest of scholars so much as this one. Dennis Johnson, he says, The seven verses may have generated more scholarly comment and theological reflection than the other 97 verses of Philippians put together. And for good reason. This brief and beautiful text is one of the fullest, most explicit descriptions in the New Testament of the identity of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And one more, in the mouth of three witnesses, Gerald Hawthorne, he says, This section is the most important section in the letter, and surely the most difficult to interpret. And as we see, there is just so much about Christ here, that the great temptation is to remove this passage out of context, just to examine the person of Christ. That's the great temptation. And you remember I said last Lord's Day, and I'll say again, and I will say next Lord's Day, never, we cannot remove the text out of the context. And I showed you last Lord's Day how the words that Paul was using before, the words that he's using now and he's continuing to using later, they all show us that this text is part of a context. So, if you think about as you were in ancient times, you're sitting there. Remember, you didn't have a Bible to read in your hands. You had to listen carefully. Repetition of words were very important to catch your memory, to take you back. And as Paul is repeating words and sounds, those people sitting in the congregation, they could take their minds back and make sure that they are following a context. And what is the context? Unity through humility in the church. So, it's very important. It's, it's so tempting to come to this text and just rip this text apart from the context and say, hey, here, let's just do a study on Christology. And that's fine, but that's not what we are doing. We are walking through a book of the Bible. We are preaching verse by verse, and we are reminded that there is a context. So, Paul is not sitting in an office surrounded by other scholars debating the person of Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is doing here. That's what people do in church councils. You get these scholars surrounded and they need to debate. And that's what happened with the, the, the Council of Chalcedon. And that's what happened with the uh, Council of Nicaea. You get the scholars and they sit and they, they start debating. That's not what Paul is doing here. What is Paul doing? As a pastor, he's writing a letter to a church that he loves. And he knows that this church is struggling with unity, lack of humility. And that's the primary purpose of this text here before us. 
I gave you part of the structure last Lord's Day. I don't know if anybody went home and, and, and took upon the task of trying to divide chiastically here this text. And what is key is, no matter how you're going to divide that, is that the center is Jesus died on the cross. That's the center of this main argument here. And as I told you, if, if I knew how to turn this thing just to rotate to my right, I think it would be even better. But I have no idea how to do that. Because then you'd have as a, as a ladder going down, reaching the crucifixion, and then you start climbing up. That's how Paul is structuring here. But just so for the sake of preaching, I, I have a different outline. That's what we do with homiletical outlines. So I cannot use that outline, so I create another one for preaching. And... I decide to have the exhortation for the, for the mindset of humility. That's verse 5. And we saw that, that last Lord's Day. And then today we start walking through the example of the mindset of humility. So there was the exhortation. Now we have the example. And that's Jesus Christ. So briefly, I just want to review last Lord's Day as we refresh our minds to, to start our journey here through verse 6. And it says in verse 5, and you're following the context, Paul is calling the church to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same heart, one spirit, one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, selfishness, vain or empty glory, but in humility of mind, lowliness of thinking, to consider others better than yourselves. So, so he's calling... For humility in order to have unity in the church. And then he comes to verse 5. And he says, have this mind. This type of thinking. This phronel. That's the Greek word. This pattern of thinking, feeling, seeing things in yourselves. And you remember I said that this is a bridge. This verse 5 is a bridge that connects us from verses 1 through 4. And then verses 6 through 11. That's very important. So he says, this think in you. That's what he literally says. This, referring to what he's requiring in the preceding verses. This type of humility. This type of life where you consider others as better than yourselves. Having yourselves. And then he says, which was or is also in Christ Jesus. And now this last part of verse 5 takes us to verses 6 through 11, when He's going to give us the example of Christ, which was in Christ Jesus. And I am pretty sure, and I think you can see in your Bibles, how from now on, Paul is going to give Christ Jesus as the example, verses 5 through 11, you can see in your Bibles. Then Paul himself is going to be an example. Look at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What is he doing here? Regarding their needs above his own. So he gives the example of Christ and he gives his own example. And look in your Bibles. Who is next? Timothy. He gives the example of Timothy. I have no one like Timothy. Why? He's always considering the interest of others above his own. And then there is the last one, Epaphroditus, who also is willing to sacrifice his life in order for the well-being of his church. So Paul is going to give four examples here. But he starts with the example of Christ. And you can just imagine 
what's going on. And that's important. As you're reading the New Testament, you, can, you, you ought to try to imagine how that be for you to be inside that house, inside that church, and maybe, we don't know, let's suppose there was Epaphroditus who came because he brought the letter to Philippi after visiting Paul. And now he has the letter. And all the church is gathered. They're so excited to hear Paul's letter. They love Paul. And now they got a letter from Paul. And now here's Epaphroditus reading Paul's letter. And he comes to this section. Can you just imagine their hearts hearing from their beloved Paul? Complete my joy. I love you so much. I'm just asking, please complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord, one mind. Do nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition or vain, empty glory. But in humility, my dear brothers, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How unnatural such command is. That's so unnatural. Nobody's born placing other people's needs above their own. Look at babies. Look at little ones. They're the most selfish beings ever. Nobody is born, and even they start growing up. You don't see them, oh, I just want to share all my toys with everyone. It's always my toys. That's so unnatural. And for older people too, because you start growing up. And if you don't take care of that sin, the more and more selfish you become. So can you just imagine being church? Maybe you just got saved. You have your Roman citizenship. People must serve you. You are a Roman. And comes this unnatural, shocking demand for them to have a low thinking of, their, of themselves and actually to place others above their needs. Imagine if you're sitting in church that morning. <laughs> Paul, Paul, we love you. What are you talking about, Paul? How low are we supposed to go? How humble are we supposed to be, Paul? How high are we supposed to put other people above our needs? And what does Paul do? I'm going to tell you. How low you must go? How high you must place people over yourself? In verses 6 through 11, Paul now recounts the story of the king's mission of self-sacrifice in order to illustrate what the humble mindset looked like in its purest, costless form when the divine Lord of glory clothed himself in a slave's shame and died the cross-cursed death for others' sake. And Paul is going to paint, paint, he's painting this picture, and he's a, 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 a brilliant, a very gifted painter. And he's going to paint this picture in three stages. And some people who are very good painters, they can do that. You can get a, a painting and you can see even though nothing is moving, you can see through the picture as if things were moving. And Paul is doing that with the story of Christ. He paints a picture of this glorious king. First of all, the height from which the king stooped. That's verse 6. Then the depths in which the king stooped down. And he starts going lower and lower and lower. And then he starts moving up. The highest heights to which this king went up. So, let's go. Verse 6. Let's start journey here. The example. Here's the example of this mindset. Paul, how low are we supposed to go? 
How humble are you supposed to be? Have this mindset in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though or because, existing in the form of God. And you've got to stop right there. Existing in the form of God. In Morpheo. And I don't know if I have the different translations here. Yeah. So, for example, the NIV says, Who, being in very nature God, the New Living Translation has, Though He was God. The NAS has, Who, although He existed in the form of God. King James, Who, being in the form of God. Here is what is important. You see the who, the, the pronoun is connecting to Jesus Christ in verse 5. So he just talked about the mind that was in Jesus, who. So the who refers to Jesus. And then he says, existing or being in the form of God. And the question is, what does it mean that Jesus existing in the form of God? And that's what has caused much debate. What does it mean, the form of God, morphe, the form of God? So much ink has been spilled in order to try to figure out the meaning of the form of God. The word morphea there, I, I agree with Moises Silva. He says that this word has a broad range of meanings, therefore the context is going to help us understand the meaning. And it's so true. Context is key, context is king. And when you go through the context, you see how Paul parallels in the form of God with equality with God. So whatever in the in form of God means, that means equality with God, equal with God the Father. So whatever the form there is, we know that Paul is developing his thinking process and he says that it's the same as equality with God. Another contextual observation is how Paul, he places the form of God in a contrast parallel with the form of a slave. So what does it mean that Jesus took on the form of a slave? It's not that Jesus was dressed like a slave. Not primarily the external, but the internal. So the form, we are tempted, especially in English. Yesterday, last night, I asked the kids, when you think about the word form, what does it come into your mind? And it's always shape something external, especially when you're thinking about English. The form, we would think about external, but it's actually the opposite, the, the idea here. It's referring to the nature of Christ, the essence. So, I agree with Hawthorne. He says, to say, therefore, that Christ exists in Morpheo, in, in, in the form of God, is to say that outside His human nature, Christ had no other manner of existing apart from existing in the form of God. That is, apart from being in possession of all the characteristics and qualities belonging to God. Being very God of very God. Paul is saying that Jesus here, He was not a lesser God. He was God Himself. And it's from here that develops the whole, throughout the New Testament, it's developing the doctrine of Trinity. The three persons of the Godhead. One God in, in, in perfect Trinity. Jesus' possession of the form of God implies participation in the essence of God. The expression does not refer simply to external appearances, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as if clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. He was in the form of God, sharing God's glory. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. What does the prophet Isaiah see? 
In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw whom? The Lord in his temple. And what happens as he's watching the Lord in his temple? The glory of the Lord fills the temple. Isaiah chapter 6. Do you know what John tells us? That when Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he actually saw whom? Christ Jesus. That passage in Isaiah, as we let the New Testament interpret, that was the glory of Christ. John chapter 12, verse 41. In John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, as he is departing, with the glory that I had with you before what? the world existed. Sharing the glory, the majesty, all the attributes of God Himself. That's what Paul is painting here about Jesus. So he says, Though or because existing in the form, having the essence, the nature of God Himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's how the ESV translates. The key word here is to grasp, harpagmos, a lot of discussion about this word. The King James translates as robbery. I really don't like that. That's just my personal opinion. Don't be angry at me. Uh, because robbery is taking something from someone that does not belong to you. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Uh, another is grasped, exploited. That's the Christian Standard Bible. Or the NIV. Uh, I think it's some people don't like. I really like this. Literally, this interpretation used to his own advantage. And there is so much discussion here. If you study this, if you have ever studied this, especially this, this word here, so many papers written. Res rapta, res raspienda. The Latin for is that passive, is that active? What is Jesus doing here? And once again, we've got to let Paul develop his thought process and let the context help us to understand. What does it mean? So, you see, look in your Bibles, please. You can see verse 6. Look at verse 6. Who, though or because, depending your interpretation here, existing in the form of God, and then he gives a negative aspect. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But now in verses 7 and 8, he's going to describe to us by giving the positive. What it means, verse 6 through the positive things that Christ did. The basic idea is Jesus refused to make a selfish choice with respect to His divinity, His deity. Frank Thielman, after studying much the, the use of this word, he says, because Christ was in very nature God, He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, something of which He should take advantage Listen to this. His equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege, but as a matter of unselfish giving. This is the character of the biblical God. And this was the character of Christ Jesus as well. That's the character of God. A God who gives. Who because existing in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, to be exploited. And that's the nature of our God. He's a God who gives. He's a God who shares. That's why you've you got to have a triune God. That makes no sense. Not a trinity. You have three persons sharing with each other love. There is mutual love. Sharing glory. 
sharing majesty. That's the nature of our God. The Trinity speaks of that. A God who shares, who gives. His nature, His true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing, but an open-handed giving. That's how our God is. And the problem in so many churches, the problem in so many families, families, the problem in so many relationships is what? Instead of acting and behaving like God, we behave like Satan, like Adam. Instead of giving, we want to grab. That's what destroys relationships. So many people who profess to be Christians, they are not characterized by an open-handed giving, but instead by a selfish grabbing. Always my advantage. What is there for me? What am I going to gain here? Always trying to get... doesn't matter. How am I going to get something out of this? Always trying to do sketchy business with other people. Why? How can I get something out of this? That's not the nature of our God. A God who gives. Who though exists in the form of God. And because He's in the form of God, because He's God Himself, He cannot be selfish. That's what Paul is saying. Because He's God, He cannot be selfish. He cannot use things for His own advantage. Because that's not the nature of our God. So when you look at verse 6, that's what you've got to come up with. Who though or because exists in the form of God did not consider. Why is that word important? this word consider important? Because he had the same Greek word. He just told the Philippians to not consider themselves as more important than others. But actually to consider others more important. That's the same word. Here's the true example. Christ did not consider Equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. You've got to leave this place, this verse 6, thinking about the nature of our God, a God who is self-giving by nature. You think about the Trinity. That's the beauty of the Trinity. The God of the Jews is not a God because he's not a triune God. Jewish people do not worship our God. They do not worship. They hate. They abhor the Trinity. The Muslims. And you can only understand love if you have a trinity where the persons, they share this perfect love. And that's the nature of our God. A God who gives. Love is giving. And look how he says. Here comes the contrast. Instead of using His deity, His majesty, His glory, His status, His honor, His riches for His own. says, but, an emphatic contrast here. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man. So verse 6 tells us what he did not do. And verses 7 and 8 going to tell us what he did. So it's the positive. And let me help you see here. Uh, verses 7 and 8. You have two main verbs. Look at verse 7. He emptied. That's one main verb. He emptied himself. And then in verse 8, he humbled himself. Those are the two main verbs here. And then what Paul does is he gives participial verbs. And these participial clauses explain how he emptied himself and how he humbled himself. That's very important. So he says, Jesus did not consider his deity something to be used for his own advantage, but on the other hand, rather, instead, he emptied himself. The word emptied, the verb to empty, can know. It's a very important verb because it's from this verb that you have some false teachings that uh, permeated through the church and it still permeates through the church. 
And you have the kenosis or the kenotic theory, the kenotic doctrine. Kenotic coming from kenosis, keno, to, to empty. And there is a, a, a great book by Donald MacLeod. Uh, I believe it's the Person and Work of Jesus Christ by Donald MacLeod. He has a whole chapter on this excellent book about the person of Christ. And there are different ways of having the, the kenotic doctrine, but... All of these false teachings related to the kenosis or the kenotic, they, they, some way or another they tell that Jesus somehow emptied himself of divinity. So, somehow Jesus, when he became a man, he emptied himself of his deity. So, he no longer was God, but he was a man. Okay? And, and that's just wrong. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's false teaching. Uh, there is no way for Jesus to stop being God once you are God, right? It's like you cannot stop being a creature once you are a creature. And just a, a, a pastoral word here because we sing, and we sing today, and can it be? And some wonderful brothers in Christ, they really don't like the hymn, that part, when it says, emptied himself of all but love. So, uh, so some, some wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, they they say, no, no, that's theologically wrong. So, for example, the hymn that we have in church, the, our grace hymnal, it has a different verse. It says, emptied himself to show his love. And I'm a big pro, pro, proponent of changing verses when it has bad teaching or it's not biblical. But I, when it comes here, I, I disagree. I disagree, and there are reasons why I disagree with these brothers and sisters who criticize Charles Wesley. First of all, Charles Wesley never denied the deity of Christ. So when he get when he get his all his works, his writings, he never denied the deity of Christ. He always affirmed that Jesus was God. So so first of all, we, we can never take a person out of context. Otherwise we can say, John, you say that God is love, but wait a second, John, you're wrong. God is holy, God is righteous. So we we need to be careful, especially he's writing a song and and so, th that's my first step towards caution. When, oh man, he, he messed up completely, Charles Wesley. He's denying the deity of God. No, no, no. That's not he's doing. And I, I think if, John, if Charles Wesley was alive, he'd have a very ironic and funny counter-argument. He could say, John says that God is love, emptied himself of all but love. Meaning what? He remained being God. So this is so it's just a way of I don't I don't think the it's a bad sentence I think it's really good what he's trying to explain there just so so sometimes he's why are we singing that isn't that wrong he emptied himself of all but love no you got to understand what he's what he means by what he's saying here so just remember it's impossible for God to empty himself of deity Jesus could never stop being God otherwise the Trinity would have been broken okay. And the text tells us, if you let Paul, and that's, the, that's why I always emphasize context. Context is key, king, queen in interpreting the scriptures. You let Paul, and he's going to tell us how, how Jesus emptied himself. And he tells us, he emptied, he emptied himself by adding a human nature. And that's one of those paradoxes of God's economy, right? God's economy has many paradoxes. In order to live, you've got to do what? Die. In order to gain, you've got to do what? To be first, you have to be what? So, 
And here you see the emptying of Jesus is actually by adding a human nature to Himself. That's how He empties Himself. It's the divine paradox of subtraction by addition. And the words that Paul is using there is important because he, in verse 3, he told the Philippians to do nothing out of what? Kenodoxia, empty glory. And now he's showing the one who had all glory and actually emptied himself. So he tells us how Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He empties himself by taking the form of a slave from glorious, perfect, majestic eternity in heaven to misery, pain, and slavery on earth. So Paul now is starting to move us down the ladder of humiliation. Taking the form, and most Bible translations, if you have English translation, is going to have what? Taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. There are very few English translations that actually translate as slave. And let me tell you, there were at least six different words for servant in Greek. There was one word for slave, dolos. And guess what? Paul used the word dolos here, slave. And the form, the form of a, a, a slave, he says, is not referring to Jesus' physical appearance, but his inward nature, his attributes. And I don't know about you, but we can hear the words of John chapter 13 echoing here. Jesus empties himself by laying aside all his divine prerogatives. And in John, we have Jesus laying aside his garments. Takes the form of a slave, Paul says. In John 13:5, Jesus takes the role of a slave. In Philippians, Jesus stoops down. In John 13, Jesus stoops down to wash their feet. But then afterwards, he is clothed with dignity. The same in Philippians. Jesus puts his garments. And then you have Jesus confessed as Lord in Philippians 2.11. And in John 13.13, 13, you call me Lord and you are right for so I am. So you can see the echo echoing here, John 13. But going back there, by taking the form of a slave. And most trans- English translations think that it would be offensive to have a slave as if that was not offensive in the first century. That's amazing. There is a massive difference between a servant and a slave. A slave belongs to someone. A slave has no rights. A servant can say, hey, I'm done. Not a slave. David Garland, he says, the slave experienced civil death with no legal or human rights. Seneca characterized a slave as one who does not have the right to refuse the slave's entire life was at the disposal of the master. And we live in a day that's all about rights. Human rights, the woman's rights, the black rights, civil rights, children's rights, LGBTQ rights, even animal rights. And the whole point of a slave is that he has what? No rights. And people come to church and they want all their rights. Peter O'Brien, he says... Slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights, even those relating to one's own life and person. When Jesus emptied himself by embracing the divine vocation and becoming incarnate, he becomes a slave without any rights whatever. He did not exchange the nature of God for that of a slave. Instead, he displayed the nature 
or form of God in the nature or form of a slave, thereby showing clearly not only what his character was like, but also what he meant to be God. That's amazing. The King of glory, the King of glory who was served by angels, all glory and riches and power and majesty, starts going down. He becomes a man and not only a man. Can you imagine for a God to become a man? God, who creates man, He becomes a man. And not only a man, but He takes the form of a slave. The one who had all rights. The creator of rights. Comes as one who has no rights. How can we sing, Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, should become a slave for me with hardness of heart, without being moved? Let me tell you, you can have all the gifts. You can have all the gifts. You can heal everybody from their disease. You can be so powerful that you can throw Mount Hood inside Crater Lake. Or even be mightier and throw Crater Lake inside Mount Hood. And yet, you resemble God the most when you behave like a slave. You resemble Jesus the most, not by exercising all your wonderful gifts, by denying your rights and serving others. Because that's the nature of God. The nature of our God is not to grasp, to get, selfishly hold on to things for personal advantage, but to give them up for the enrichment of all. Our God is a giver, not a grasper or a grabber. Let me ask you, who have you been imitating lately? When people look at your lives, do they see you as one who is marked by giving or by grabbing whatever you can? Are you always trying to get all that you deserve and can? Or are you always ready to give? Forsake your rights. But that's my right! Behold Christ. Behold Christ. That's amazing. We live in a time when it's all about psychology. And then you go and Christians need counseling and they go to professional counselors. And you go to these Christian counselors and it's amazing that they never talk about Christ and the church. And you get Paul. Every time that there is a need in the church, every time that there is a confusion, every time there is a conf- something happening, what does he do? Look to Christ. You have marital problems. Look to Christ. <laughs> That's too simplistic. Works for a divine inspired author. Look to Christ. I'm having financial problems. You need to learn from Christ. You see, that's what Paul is doing here. We have problems in the church. People being arrogant. People being graspers. Grabbing for their own instead of giving. You guys need to look to Christ. So Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He who had all majesty, power, riches, glory, honor, adoration, right to be worshipped, enjoyed love like no one else, emptied himself by taking the form of a slave in order to serve miserable people like you and me. Isn't that amazing? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my king, would become a slave to serve me? Can you imagine if each one of us adopt this mindset that Paul is demanding from Christians? Have this mindset among you. Can you imagine how that would be? How can I relinquish my rights? How can I serve? How can I deny myself? You see, we live in a culture that's the completely opposite. It's all about you. So have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
He who was served by all, the angels, enthroned by praises of creation, comes to serve. And by taking the form of a slave, that's, that, that's just... Here it's important to have a, a, a biblical view of things. And by taking the form of a slave, Jesus is actually fulfilling the great promise in the Old Testament of the slave of the Lord, Eved Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, that Isaiah speaks. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And you start seeing how this slave, the servant, the Eved, the Hebrew word could be translated as both servant or slave, in light of the New Testament use of slave, I think there's a better picture here. Isaiah 52, verse 13. And remember, there are no chapters, so that's connected to chapter 53 of Isaiah. Behold my, what? My servant, my evad, my slave. He shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But there is a time for that. Before this exaltation, there is humiliation. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then you go on, you can read at home. But here he is the slave of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. And what does he do? He bore our sins. That's what a slave did. He bore on our behalf. He carried in his body the pain that was ours. He was pierced in our behalf. So here is the one who is in charge of the whole world, Creator of all things comes in the form of a dolos, a slave. He became the one who had all majesty before, becomes one with no majesty. One who had complete, perfect union, fellowship, becomes despised and rejected. And it's because of the servant's death that Paul can say, now you, because he has died in your place, because he has served on your behalf. And now you're united with Him by faith. Now you live like Him. Christ became human, not as a monarch, not as a king in a palace, nor as a wealthy noble in a state house. He came as a slave without rights, whose whole purpose in life was to meet the needs of others. Instead of demanding His rights to be served as God, He stooped to perform the slave's most menial task. Think about how... Beautiful, how wonderful it is when we obey verse 5 and we adopt, we have this mindset that it was in Christ Jesus. In the church, among the elders, instead of using the authority that God has given, instead of grabbing and using for our own advantage, actually using for service. The members coming to church thinking, how can I be an excellent slave here? How can I serve? People come to church always thinking, well, how are you going to serve me? How is this church going to meet my needs? Brother, have you ever read your Bible? That's why when we are interviewing new members, we always ask, how are you going to serve this body? We always ask, what do you expect? What do you hope? And then it comes to the question, how are you going to serve this body? Imagine this mindset at home. Sons and daughters thinking about their nature as slaves in Christ. And parents and spouse trying to serve instead of clinging and grasping to our own rights as slaves. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, having the nature of God, having the glory, the majesty, the power, authority, riches, did not consider 
all these attributes as something to be used for his own advantage, but actually emptied himself by taking the form of a dolos, a slave. And that's just the first step. Paul is going to continue going down and down and down until we reach the cross, the lowest point any person could ever be in the Roman Empire. There was no lower place than being hanging on a cross. But I want to stop right here. I want us to truly reflect and think about this mindset. And think about why Paul is writing. There is a church suffering a fracture in the unity because of lack of humility. And what does Paul do? Remember Christ. Remember Christ who came not as a king, but as a slave to serve. No rights. Thinking about others. Placing others above yourselves. Brothers and sisters, how many arguments, how many divisions, how many issues would just fall apart if before we start grasping for my way, my right? I was thinking, well, he took the form of a dolos. I'm in him. I must be a dolos. Actually, how can I serve? How can I humble myself? So many issues in the church because of lack of a slave mindset. We are Americans. We have our rights. We are Christians. And I ask you, what were the rights of Christ? Workplace. How many times we have lack of humility, lack of a do-loss mindset, arguments at home. Here's the remedy. Here's the solution. If you are in Christ, you must live like Christ. And this church is marked by servanthood. So many members are so quick to serve. So many members resemble Christ in their eagerness to be a dolos, a church of slaves. But we all know that we must be always growing, excelling in this art of being a slave. So may the Lord help us. May the Lord empower us. May the Lord be merciful to us. So when people come and see us and we look at each other, as we do so many times, I email people here, we text each other, we call each other dolos. You're soon dolos. You're co-slave. And when I'm talking to these guys, I'm calling them slaves because I know how they live. And I'm not going to call slaves those who don't live like slaves. But we see in this body this desire to reflect Christ. And may the Lord be gracious to us and keep His hand upon us, causing us to always see ourselves as Christ, in Christ, as slaves of Christ. Lord, we declare with Charles Wesley, amazing love, how can it be that Thou, the King of kings, Lord of lords, would become a slave for me. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we deserve more than You. Shame on us! Shame on us for thinking that we deserve more than You. The servant is never greater than his master. So forgive us, Lord, for thinking that we deserve more than You. And help us, Lord. I beg You, help us. You have been so gracious to this church. But we know the sinfulness of sin. How easy it is to, to, to be tempted to think highly of ourselves, Lord. So please let Your Holy Spirit and Your Word work in us. Use brothers and sisters to help us to become more and more like Christ, slaves, belonging to You and You alone, and for Your glory alone. In Jesus' name, Amen.